Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A surprise executive order from Janice McGeehan while she was acting governor and a strongly worded rebuke from Brad Little just gave us a preview of how the coming Republican gubernatorial campaign is going to look. And it looks like it won't be pretty. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, House Minority Leader Laura Nekachea sits down with Idaho Reports Associate Producer Logan Finney to discuss the problems she sees with this year's sweeping property tax legislation. Then Logan Finney, Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press join me to discuss another wild week in Idaho politics. And let's get you caught up on that week. The big news on Thursday while serving as actor Governor, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan issued a surprise executive order banning state and local government entities, including public schools, from issuing mask mandates. The order went into effect almost immediately. McGeehan told Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports she hoped Governor Little would leave the order in place. You know, I'm an optimist and think, hoping that he'll see the value in keeping it in place. I mean, he never did support a mask, at least he said he never supported a mask mandate. So my hope is that he will honor it and recognize that we're kind of beyond that point and more people have been vaccinated. Uh, it's just especially hard for me to see the little kids, you know, being forced to wear a mask in school. McGeehan also told Idaho Reports she did not notify school districts that the order was coming. On Friday, Little responded with an executive order of his own repealing McGeehan's. He also issued a scathing statement rebuking her, calling it an irresponsible self-serving political stunt, saying, quote, this kind of over-the-top executive action amounts to tyranny, something we all oppose. How ironic the action comes from a person who has groused about tyranny, executive overreach, and balance of power for months, end quote. On Friday, the Attorney General's office released an analysis of McGeehan's executive order saying, quote, this executive order appears to run counter to both the Idaho Constitution and the governor's statutory executive authority, end quote. We have Little's full statement on the Idaho Reports blog, as well as McGeehan's response and the AG analysis. You'll find that link at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. We'll have much more with the pundits. Also on Thursday, House Speaker Scott Bedke announced he is running for Lieutenant Governor. I'm the only candidate in the race who has tested and trusted experience in getting things done for Idaho. After the announcement, Idaho Reports associate producer Logan Finney sat down with Bedke. The state of Idaho is growing very quickly, and with that growth comes some growing pains. But as we, uh, but as we go forward, we don't want to jettison any of the Idaho values that have made us so successful and that make us such a great place to live and to work and to raise our families. I think that uh, as we look back on my track record, that I, I've got the experience and the results that uh, will help Idaho going forward. I'm not doing this 
based on any personal agenda. As I described earlier, our family has been very blessed. We've been here for a long time, and I have the ability and the chance at this point in my life to give back, and I want to do that. Uh, at the same time, we, we're facing a bunch of problems in transportation, in education, in natural resources. Well, that's where I've spent my legislative career is solving problems in those three areas and, uh, and others. Uh, tax policy as well. And those are the issues that face us as we go forward. You'll find a post covering the campaign announcement on the Idaho Reports blog, as well as the full interview with Bedke on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. In the midst of headline-grabbing news this week, cities, counties, and homeowners across the state are currently trying to wrap their heads around a sweeping new property tax reform law that, among other things, caps local government budget growth, increases the homeowner's exemption to $125,000, and makes changes to the circuit breaker program. Logan Finney sat down with House Assistant Minority Leader Lauren Nekachea to get her take on the bill and its implications. So let's start with the property tax bill. The big bill was House Bill 389. Uh, will this make a difference overall for homeowners and for property taxpayers throughout the state, you think? Not really, <laughs> and it's going to cause some problems. Um, the, there's a marginal increase in the homeowner's exemption, which we all know we need. It's low-hanging fruit to adjust that homeowner's exemption. We're seeing an incredible tax shift onto homeowners and away from other types of property, namely commercial property, since that homeowner's exemption was capped in 2016 and no longer adjusts with housing prices. Um, the problem is, is the increase was so small that it's not even going to cushion most homeowners from, it, from the last year of, of growth in home prices. Right, that was a, a $25,000 increase. Is that right? A 25% from the 100,000 to 125,000? That's correct. Meanwhile, we're seeing in, can in counties like Canyon County and Ada County, home prices over the last year have gone up 42% or 27%. Uh, so that's so small. And really, the homeowner's exemption would be $150,000 today if the legislature hadn't capped it back in 2016. So we're not even making up for you know, the last four years of growth, let alone this, this latest year. That, that um, is something that we hear from, uh, from Republican lawmakers sometimes. They say, they point back to the numbers and say, well, when the homeowner's exemption was indexed, it actually went down from 100,000. But you're saying that the times since then, it, it would be much higher than that, that that argument doesn't hold as much water? That's right, because the, the environment has changed, and I think the interests who <laughs> pursued that cap on the homeowner's exemption could see the future and could see what was going to happen, and that if that um, you know some people are making out very well in this system where home prices grow rapidly, our property taxes are a function of those you know taxable the, the taxable value of your home, and so homeowners are just carrying more and more of that load. While we see commercial properties in the same neighborhood see their property taxes go down year after year, and it's not sustainable and it's not fair, and we just have to get back to a fair, predictable balance. Sure, and the homeowner the homeowners exemption was not the only program that was addressed in that bill. There was also the circuit breaker uh, property tax program, and could you maybe explain a little bit what that circuit breaker program is for the folks who don't know? Sure. So that's a property tax assistance program for seniors and people with disabilities, and you apply based on your income, and you can get a certain level of uh, of assistance to help you know buy down your property tax bill. 
a little bit. And what this bill did was it made a very small, small increase into the level of assistance you could get. We haven't updated that since 2006. It made a small change in um, the level of income that, that made you eligible. Mm -hmm. The problem is that to pay for these small increases, which are gonna be about $2 million a year, they're actually cutting seniors out of the program. So they're not adding any more property tax assistance to the, you know, <laughs> to the state. They're cutting seniors out who happen to have a, a home level uh, or a home value that's a little bit above the median in their county. And there are plenty of seniors with modest homes who are seeing, you know, growth and <laughs> just springing up around them, mm -hmm. and they're going to be caught um, in this in this in this really bad <laughs> bad bill that that it's, does harm. We should strive to do no harm, and we're doing harm in this bill. It is an interesting tweak that they make because, like you say, the program used to be based entirely on on income level, mm -hmm. um, and this year they adjusted the in, the bill adjusts the, those income levels, but also adds. Uh, a cutoff based on the value of the home, is that right? That's correct, and there was a lot of talk about of multi-million dollar homes getting this program. That's not what they put in the bill. <laughs> they put in the bill if you're at you know, 25% above the median home value for your county, even if you're extremely low income, you are cut from the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a delayed implementation in that though, right? There's a, there's a, a year before that goes into effect? Um, that will hit come January. Come January. So it will hit before we have a time, we have the chance to change it. To change, okay. Well, thank you for clearing that up for me. Um, so would you be happy with these circuit breaker changes if there wasn't that, that cutoff added to the, to the program? Um, I could have supported <laughs> it, even though, even though those changes are modest, I would like to see, I would have liked to have seen a more generous um, um, increase to that assistance that, you know, for seniors, just like this bill does for businesses. This bill increases a, a business property tax exemption to the tune of $8 million, and the bill is gonna take $8 million of state money to fund that. Meanwhile, the property tax assistance for seniors, that modest increase is funded by kicking some seniors out of the program, and that's an unfortunate, those are unfortunate priorities, and I don't think those are the priorities of Idahoans. Sure, the prioritization there. Um, and then there's also in the bill, there's a budget cap provision for local governments. We just keep running down the cafeteria list, it feels like. Um, some cities like Caldwell have discussed a moratorium on new development due to some of this legislation. We've heard concerns from NAMPA. Um, do you see any solutions to the city's concerns that could come about next year? Um, I think we just need to undo that piece of the bill. It's gonna be very harmful to public safety and emergency response. You'll find the full interview with Representative Nekachea, including her thoughts on the big income tax bill on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. Joining us today for the pundits, we have Logan Finney and Ruth Brown, both of Idaho Reports, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, and Betsy Russell with the Idaho Press. Betsy, let's start with the executive order. Uh, we, we talked a lot about the contents of it. Let's talk about how it felt very much like an extension of this primary campaign for governor. Oh yeah, it definitely did not feel like the usual drab business of government. Um, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan issued that executive order um, during a very, very brief stint as acting governor. She took over at 11.30 p.m. the night before from Chuck Winder and had issued it by 11 o'clock that morning. 
and today, now on Friday, the governor has issued his own executive order, not only rescinding hers, but making his new one effective at 11 o'clock the day before, retroactively to the time hers went into effect. Yeah, let's talk about that chain of command really, really quick, because Governor Little has had been out of town since, what, Monday, Tuesday? It was Tuesday morning when he left. And so when the governor is out of state, he formally notifies his lieutenant governor, who is next in the chain of command, and apparently um, had a letter hand-delivered to her office, which was accepted by a staffer, I believe, on Monday. But the lieutenant governor was also out of state on vacation. And so Chuck Winder, the Senate president pro tem, became acting governor until the lieutenant governor could return to the state, which happened at 11.30 the night before she issued her executive order. And, and so much about the the text of the executive, the original executive order from McGeehan, um, and the conversations around it, felt like an extension of her campaign challenge to Governor Little. Well, I think the original order on Thursday was very clearly a direct challenge to the governor. I think it was sort of a game of political chicken here. Uh, she. McGeehan issued a pretty strong challenge to Governor Little, and I think a lot of political observers, myself included, and just about anybody who observes politics on Idaho Twitter, were wondering, how does Governor Little respond? Well, it didn't take us long to find out, and he, he came out forcefully. He, he came out forcefully with an executive order of his own and a very strong statement, one of the most strongly worded I've seen from him, and that's including his statements directed at the legislature this last session. His executive order also felt a little bit campaign-y, Ruth. It did, yeah. He led with uh, stating that he was a conservative Idahoan, and as a conservative Idahoan, um, he was going to rescind uh, McGeehan's order. So it seemed as though Governor Little was not going to start this, but since Lieutenant Governor McGeehan did, he had to respond and was making it clear that he didn't approve, but he also was going to accept the challenge. It was, very, it was very much an instance of, if you were governor for a day, and she happened to be governor for a day, <laughs> what are you gonna do if elected? Um, and she said, I'm gonna repeal all the mask mandates, this is how I'm gonna act, she said. Well, she didn't say, but she effectively forced a campaign issue a year ahead of the primary. Um, and then this morning, we see Governor Little says, okay, if you wanna play ball, I'll play ball. Here's, here's my response to you. And in that short amount of time, there was a lot of confusion, um, especially with school districts, which are among the only political entities really left that have mask mandates. You talked to McGeehan right after the news became public that she had done this. Yeah, and I, I did ask her regarding uh, questions regarding children in a couple of ways. Number one, did she inform the school districts? And she said, no, she did not. It was largely a surprise executive order. I also asked her, um, is she concerned about children under age 12 who cannot be vaccinated for coronavirus? They can, of course, both contract it, but they can also spread it, which is a, um, a major concern, I think, for public health. She seemed uh, largely unconcerned about that because teachers can choose to wear masks. Uh, I think that perhaps is a little bit short-sighted because, of course, the children go home and are around other adults. They're around all kinds of people. So and, and also, you know, while coronavirus complications in children are rare, they can also be serious. Mm -hmm. There have been 26 Idaho children that we know of that have been diagnosed with multisymptom inflammatory uh, syndrome in children. Yeah. Um, one was a teenager, I know, and uh, required a heart transplant, but they can create long-lasting cardiac 
issues that can be detrimental to that child's health for the rest of their life. I think emblematic of the confusion that we saw on Thursday off of this executive order, the Idaho School Boards Association issued a statement Thursday afternoon that said, we really don't think that this mask mandate applies to school districts and school trustees. We think that uh, duly elected trustees have statutory and constitutional responsibilities for children and their health and welfare. So, you know, you had school boards and school districts, the ones that are still in in session, a lot of schools are, are adjourning and recessing for the summer, saying, well, we don't really think this applies to us. Well, and we know that the Attorney General's office issued an analysis that seems to agree with that. Basically, the Attorney General's analysis, which was requested by Senator Melissa Wintrow and which came out today, um, found that the entire executive order was unconstitutional and illegal. It did things you can't do in an executive order, basically trying to enact a law um, the mask mandate prohibition that had passed the House but died in the Senate. So it was not a law. And that's not something a governor can do by executive order. But it also really made me wonder about House Bill 392. So that is one of the four emergency powers bills that the legislature passed late in the session this year with emergency clauses and the governor signed all four of them into law and they were aimed at reducing the governor's emergency powers and enlarging the role of the legislature. And what House Bill 392 did was it said that no governor could suspend or alter any provision of Idaho code during a disaster emergency. Well, specific provisions of Idaho code say that school boards of trustees are in charge of health and safety of students and are in charge of infectious diseases in schools. There are also separate parts of Idaho code that specifically empower public health districts and cities to handle these matters. And basically the um, Lieutenant Governor's executive order through some notwithstanding language tried to just set that all aside. That is exactly what we heard Republican conservatives in the legislature all session railing against unilateral action by the governor in an emergency and in fact Lieutenant Governor McGeehan herself has been very outspoken in saying that that was overreach. And so now today we heard or in, in the governor's statement we heard him use the word tyranny <laughs> to apply to her action because that's not how our government works. A lot of the gist of these emergency powers are intended to, in a situation where things are breaking down, ensure smooth operations and a continuity of government. And if we're talking about continuity and consistent policy, that's the opposite of what we've seen over the last couple days. You know, and, and that's just, that just happened before noon on Thursday <laughs> and was just one of the many things that happened on Thursday. I want to bring up the um, Indoctrination and in Education Task Force that is also uh, one of Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's projects. Um, Ruth, Kevin, uh, Betsy, you, you all covered this. Ruth, were there any surprises in that meeting? Uh, so I was surprised uh, by the individuals who were selected to be on the task force because most of them, uh, they did introductions at the beginning of the meeting. Most of them seemed to come into it with an idea that they were going to root out critical race theory. That's under the assumption that critical race theory is being taught in school. And of course the Board of Education has said they know of no widespread indoctrination, that our teachers wouldn't do that. So I was, I was surprised that a task force that was theoretically going to investigate whether this is an issue instead went into it as if there was. Uh, so I think, I think I was surprised at how they approached it. If this task force 
looks for all the world like it's an extension of the McGee and, and Giddings campaigns, which is kind of how it looks right now. This gives you an idea of who McGee and, and Giddings want to listen to on education policy and who they don't really want to listen to on education policy, at least on this issue. I'm struck by the groups that are not at the table. Mm. Idaho Education Association wanted a representative, didn't get one. Now, the IEA and McGeehan are political adversaries, I get that. But Idaho Business for Education wanted no part of this thing. Uh, they felt like it was going to be you know, not, not constructive and they didn't want to be involved in it. They didn't want to uh, have any kind of, you know, add any sense of legitimacy to it. The Idaho School Boards Association, they did get a representative, but they're taking a very wait and see approach to it. They, they're not sure uh, how this is going to turn out. This is a very political body, and you know, I don't know what we're going to get in the way of rec recommendations and you know, what happens with those recommendations if and when they arrive. And, and it seemed emblematic that Lieutenant Governor McGeehan and Representative Giddings were sitting right next to each other and saying, oh, we are running for governor and lieutenant governor as a ticket, and here we are today. Right. And it's not, it's not just a task force that's looking at uh, critical race theory and issues of discrimination or diversity. In some of her communications, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan has specifically called out socialism and Marxism, and I believe that was brought up in the actual meeting yeah. itself, which draws an interesting distinction between this task force and House Bill 377, which was supposed to address a lot of these critical race theory concerns in the legislature. We heard, I think it was uh, Representative Wendy Horman, who's very conservative in her own right, say this bill is about beliefs and personal uh, convictions. It is not pursuing any specific ism. We're not trying to stomp out any schools of thought. Whereas McGeehan and this task force, in, from what I've seen, are specifically saying we are here to smoke out Marxism and socialism in Idaho schools. Yeah, very, very different approaches to what on the surface seems to be the same topic. Right, Kevin, this this comes after Holly Troxell's report released earlier this week about uh, you know, accusations of indoctrination um, and discrimination at Boise State University. Yeah, way back on Monday, six months ago, uh, <laughs> Boise State released the report from Holly Troxell, the, the Boise law firm that was asked to look into allegations of students being harassed for their values and beliefs in this University Foundation's 200 <laughs> class, which is a diversity and ethics class. And the report exonerated Boise State. It said that uh, investigators could find no evidence to back up the initial claim that a student was harassed in, in one of these classes and could find really no evidence of anything that would be potentially uh, a violation of House Bill 377. That's not really what they were looking for because House Bill 377 came, came along the way. But the report really exonerates Boise State and raises a lot of questions. We still don't know who exactly made the initial complaint to Boise State. It was a verbal complaint, not a written complaint. I, tried, <laughs> I filed a records request and got nowhere with it because it was a verbal complaint. So we don't know who filed that complaint, but in spite of what the report said, that complaint clearly had resonance at the State House. It's not hard to draw a link between that complaint, this investigation, and the fact that legislators later cut a million and a half dollars from Boise State's budget and passed House Bill 377, the anti-indoctrination law, based in part on a claim that came from a non-student, a concerned citizen, uh, that investigators could not back up, that does not seem to have any you know, hard evidence behind it. Not and only could they not back it up, I think that the investigation was pretty clear and pretty stunning in its findings that basically that report was a hoax. That the incident, when they finally found out what incident 
occurred, and they corroborated with this with eight students, did not involve a discussion of, of critical race theory or race or white privilege. It was on another topic. It was the student who called the instructor stupid, not the other way around. The instructor reached out to the student, um, and it was a completely to different. To make sure the student was okay. Right. Too. Yeah. Right. right. And right. was defending was the student to other classmates. Just a completely different type of event than what had been alleged. And, and the report really called into question the credibility of the initial complainant. The report goes at some length to say investigators tried several times to meet with this person, finally did meet with the person, uh, could not produce the video, the video evidence of this harassment in class and, and was not forthcoming in helping the investigators get their hands Claimed on the report. Claimed to have seen it on someone else's phone. Right. Despite all of this, the task force is still going strong. They um, plan to meet in June to talk about K through 12 specifically, any possible indoctrination or critical race theory uh, ideology that um, is allegedly being brought into the system. You know, and, and you mentioned that with that indoctrination task force, the uh, the co-chair is Representative Priscilla Giddings, who of course is running for Lieutenant Governor. Um, Logan, you covered Speaker Scott Bedke's announcement that he is also throwing his hat in the ring for that race. And one of the things that we didn't mention earlier in the show is, is there were some unexpected guests at that announcement, supporters of Priscilla Giddings. Well, unexpected is a word, maybe uninvited. Uh, <laughs> as we were getting set up in, or not we, as the crowd was getting set up in the rotunda before uh, Speaker Bedke's announcement, there's a podium that says Bedke, Lieutenant Governor, obviously we know what's gonna happen, and a, a, a good-sized crowd of uh, supporters with various official campaign signs and handwritten signs uh, supporting candidate Giddings set up camp right behind the podium, and then we're soon followed by a wave of Bedke supporters with their own signs trying to block and shoulder them out, and so we kind of had a, a foreground announcement and a background shuffling of uh, signs and elbows and shoulders, which was uh, an interesting morning for sure. Additionally, during the course of the announcement, some of the, and there was not a large number, but that small number of people, of Priscilla Giddings supporters were shoving their signs in front of the Benke signs, and some were actively heckling Scott Benke as he was making his announcement. And this was actually incredibly unusual for an announcement of a statewide run for office. The last time I can remember anything like that goes all the way back to 1990 when Roger Fairchild <laughs> announced that he was going to run as a Republican for governor against Cecil Andrus and his ex-wife showed up and heckled him during his announcement. I believe Kevin was there. No, I, I was not, but this lives on in folklore. <laughs> and, and relatively speaking, Scott Baby got off light. I mean, you know, I, you know as opposed to he did what, say, I don't what the Fairchild did. <laughs> <laughs> but, the thing, but, but the thing about this, I mean, this is obviously going to be such a, a tense and pitched battle uh, in this primary. And, and I really, Scott Bedke is kind of a household name in Idaho politics, and he's obviously a political force within the state house. I mean, he, he ousted a sitting speaker to get his current post. He's beaten back challenges in House leadership elections to maintain his speaker speaker's post. He's now the longest serving speaker in state history. But the last time he faced a contested election at the polls, Republican primary 2004, he's not had a contested race since. He's got one now. It's gonna be fascinating to see what kind of a campaigner he is 
with the pressure on. And there's a third candidate in that race, yes. and former state yes. representative Luke Malik. So it's already a three-way primary race. Yeah, there's almost a year till the race. It could be a six-way primary. Who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm ready for anything, but you know, and, and I will say, you know, to Kevin's point, it is very different running as a household name in Kaja County for a state as a state representative. Um, very different running for a statewide post in a competitive Republican primary. That is right. I asked Speaker Bedke about that uh, after the announcement. Had a one-on-one -on -one interview with him, and he said, "You know, running statewide <clears throat> as opposed to running in my local district, it's not really going to change my strategy that much." He said, "I have experience as the speaker being elected by representatives from statewide, and so I have experience uh, talking to different groups with different local interests, bringing stakeholders together, having those statewide conversations." And we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.